Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Alrighty, welcome everyone to yet another episode of the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today, I'm joined in with a very special guest, a man who really is pioneering um, the microbiome field and a lot on gut health and probiotics. He's the lead researcher and founder of probioticadvisor.com. So the man himself, Jason Horolak, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucas. It's good to be here. Fantastic. So I guess maybe for my listeners, did you want to give them a little bit of an insight into how your, I guess, naturopathic journey really all started? I can do that. Yeah. Um, and I was one of those people that grew up in a, uh, grew up in Canada and I grew up with parents who were probably pretty typical of, of parents at that, <laughs> that time point of not having a great idea of what good health was and how to, you know, they did their best obviously, but, you know, I had numerous courses of antibiotics, like probably probably two or three year on average in those early years, ate a lot of junk food, um, a lot of junk food. <laughs> um, and, you know, I didn't have great health at that, that from my early, early years, you know, and, and it was really when I, when I started traveling, I uh, was a, so just had to be a backpacker and you know travel, make my way around the world was my idea. I didn't get too far before I arrived in Australia. I think it was my third country in my round the world trip. Um, fell in love with the country and and when I arrived, I arrived in northern New South Wales around Byron Bay in the early nineties and it was a pretty transformative place back back then um, and it just really got me in contact uh, an awareness of of good health and, and what we could be doing to look after oneself, which is really something I think knew nothing about leading up to that so you know I went through those phases of um, essentially implementing naturopathy personally and then just seeing this absolutely huge change in my life, my asthma allergies, hay fever, um, energy levels you know, infection levels all those things changed mm. dramatically. Um, it just felt better. And that was living naturopathy. And then I uh, later worked out that you could study this <laughs> to become a naturopath and help other people. Um, cause you know, I'd never heard of such a thing when I was in Canada, you know, I never heard of naturopaths or herbalists. Um, I was very much in that Western uh, medical model as, as a 
my family was and as I was as a child. Um, so, so I studied naturopathy at Southern Cross University. And then in my final year of, of study, essentially I had a, a lecture um, given by Dr. Stephen Myers talking about leaky gut and dysbiosis. And this to me was like one of those pivotal turning points where, you know, I had, you know, you're, you're, you're pretty generalist in your naturopathic training. And I love, I mean, I love herbs and I love nutrition. That is my, my core, core things that I was always going to take with me regardless. But it's just having that, that lecture really stimulated something and it really grabbed me that he essentially brought together the information that was around there around the importance of gut integrity and the potential consequences of leaky gut on a range of other health conditions and this dysbiosis. And this was back in 1999, you know, so naturopaths have been essentially talking about leaky gut and uh, dysbiotic ecosystems from the, well, for a long time, but certainly pretty heavily from the 1980s sort of onwards, you know, so it's for naturopaths, it's not a a new concept. What's new perhaps is, is, is the knowledge levels and development and the testing. Those things have certainly moved, but talking about good gut health and health ecosystem are things that we've been taught doing as a profession for, for decades. Yeah. But it's really his, his lecture really stimulated me so much. I went and spoke to him right afterwards and said, Hey, I want to do my honors degree and hopefully PhD in, in this area. And that's essentially what I did. So, so from 2000 onwards, I did my you know, clinical trial looking at the, the microbiome, what we called the microflora at that point in irritable bowel syndrome patients. We looked at leaky gut and IBS patients, designed a you know, treatment protocol with herbs and prebiotics and probiotics to treat these patients with IBS. And then that flowed on to my PhD, which we, we kept doing in a similar vein, really trying to work out ways to beneficially modify the ecosystem. And it's been pretty amazing to be in the gut and got microbiome field since that point, because that's where, from the early 2000s, where it really started to to boom dramatically. And you never would have guessed it, you know, back in the like 1990s or even probably 2000, 2001, that it was going to boom the way that it has. But yeah, it's been an amazing ride in that, along that way. And to just see, for me, it's just been amazing to see the changes in technology and the tools that we have, as clinicians have access to, to look at ecosystems now are like light years away from where they were. 20 years ago. And because of that, that evolution of tools, it means that researchers around the world can actually see more of what's going on than what we could 20, 30, 40 years ago, where the tools we're using, you know, culturing, were, were very crude, and we couldn't really see nuanced changes, and sometimes even big changes. You can put people on like all vegetarian diets or all meat diets, and they don't like it. They couldn't even see real much difference in their ecosystems back in the 80s and 90s when they did those experiments. And now we know that there's dramatic differences from that we just didn't have the technology to see such things back then yeah it's fascinating you mentioned um one of your earlier research projects was analyzing or assessing the microflora of uh ibs patients curious to know like what what did you find in that in the early stages well this is one of those those um pivotal turning point stories again <laughs> in that we were doing um cdsa's comprehensive stool digestive stool analyses on these patients and what was trying to think like my, my main takeaway was that those weren't very accurate <laughs> that's my main takeaway from my, my honors year at that point they were based on culturing and we were giving our patients you know 100 billion lactobacilli yeah. from a supplement that was designed just for my clinical trial so it was weeks old like it was they were made sent to me given to patients there's not no die off of microbes there we're giving them two different prebiotics and and the test we were using was unable to tell any changes before and after we're looking at the gut ecosystem. And to me, that was just like unbelievable because we knew there's bugs in the, in the supplement. We knew that we're, they're giving therapeutic doses of prebiotics because they were farting like mad. They had like a lot of flatulence, a lot of gut action going on. So they were working the way that we'd expect them to. Um, and, and they were unable to determine any real shift. And that was a huge red flag and certainly maybe want to go down and investigate like the, the, the different types of stool analysis we should be doing and why we should get away from culturing as a way of assessing um, gut microbiome health. And thankfully, 20 years on, we're generally there. Um, but there's still some labs and still some pressures holding on to the, the, to the culturing because yeah. <laughs> I don't want to move along with the times. Um, but I think from memory, I'm happy to search really back my memory banks. It was probably low bifidobacteria, I think was one of the things we did show up in our IBS patients. And we, and we certainly found them to have a higher instance of, of increased intestinal permeability too. Yeah. Interesting. So I guess maybe we can um, transition over into uh, an area that you're obviously very passionate about, and that is 
understanding probiotics, just in general, understanding probiotics and their effects on on humans. So, do you want to sort of talk about how how your interest sort of like shifted in towards understanding probiotics a little bit better? Yeah, and that really started back in 2000 when I was doing my honors degree where we really had to design a probiotic supplement as one of the components to treat these patients with IBS. And then that followed through with my research I did as part of my PhD. Mm. So that gave me a chance to really delve into the probiotic literature. And, you know, as, as a naturopathic student, we certainly get taught around use of probiotics and certainly far, far more so than any other sort of health profession. Mm. Um, but there were still big gaps, as it turns out. And, and that was certainly around stuff around strain specificity. And you're probably quite familiar with this concept, but I can tell you back then, <laughs> no natural knew about strain specificity. It was like a very new concept, an industry that was, was quite ignorant about it too in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and to me, that was one of the biggest, biggest takeaways that I learned in the first couple of years was this, mm-hmm. this idea that, oh, okay, within a, a species, there's actually a multitude of strains that could actually display different characteristics and have different therapeutic actions. And that was pretty mind-blowing. And it really mm-hmm. changed the way that, that we, we put together, you know, probiotic supplements for my study because we tried to find ones that had the right actions or the right activity for patients with IBS. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that obviously flows through into practice because I've stayed a, whilst I've been doing research, I've always been a clinician as well. Mm-hmm. So, you, you can't not put that information that you learn into practice. You're trying to source and find the, the best research showing what strains are good for what conditions and that sort of we. And then I've always been, I've been teaching from probably 2000, probably 2001. I started teaching at, at Southern Cross, doing a little bit of stuff around probiotics and gut health um, in, in the nutrition um, units. And that allowed me to sort of start developing teaching resources around that. And you mm-hmm. start off with very small documents that were a couple of pages and then there's two two or three documents and, and by the time 10 years goes on i've got giant documents that i used to have to give to students and then eventually i decided i should shove that into a database and that's where the, the product advisor database came from because then it just meant that there's so much information that built up over you know 15 years that i could put it all into a searchable space and make it far easier for people to access that information because it is really about um, to finding the right probiotic strain that has the action that you're after to change the physiology or the disease process you want to shift. It's not unlike with herbal medicines where we choose the, the herb that has the action. So if someone's got gut spasms, we choose an antispasmodic. Or if someone's um, anxious, we, we choose something that, that decreases anxiety, an anxiolytic. Yeah, or we same way that people with pharmaceuticals is after an action, and th- and that's really what the research is showing around probiotics too, mm-hmm. is that they are should be really used in the same way of sort of disease specific and and strain specific for the most part. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> when I <clears throat> when I started researching probiotics, I was really trying to understand more about, I guess, not only whether or not they have the ability to colonize, but also some of the epigenetic effects that they that they may have like changing sort of gene expression so you know when people yeah. they'll argue this probiotic doesn't work because it has no it just goes straight through your you know there's people that sort of say you take a probiotic it doesn't do anything so do you want to sort of explore more on how even though we might consume a probiotic we're sort of neglecting the effect that it may have on gene expression or you know certain enzymes and things like that well i think part of the the problem in the probiotic realm comes and you see newspaper articles and media articles around the two of like a study shows that probiotics don't change the ecosystem and it's like for people that have been researching probiotics for a long time like myself yeah we've known that for a long, a long time it's not why people are giving it necessarily i mean there'll be occasions where post-chemotherapy, right after radiotherapy, during and right after antibiotics, where often they do shift the ecosystem mm. because it's a very um, influx environment and we can they, they can't, their, their presence then can actually shift things in certain ways. Yeah, but once an ecosystem is much more established, probiotics have pretty minimal impact mm. on, on shifting that ecosystem. But that doesn't mean that they're not useful or they're not therapeutic. And I think it's the, that's the key takeaway here too, is that there are hundreds of studies showing that probiotics have therapeutic actions independent of the capacity to colonize or stay in the gut for any length of time. Will they stop having that action when you stop taking it? Yeah. <laughs> sort of like if you're taking an antihypertensive medication for your high blood pressure and you stop taking it and you're not doing anything else to fix why you've got hypertension, well, your blood pressure is going to go up. Mm-hmm. It's the same way. And there actually even are some probiotics that help will decrease blood pressure. And if you take them, they go down, you stop taking it, it will eventually go back up if you haven't mm-hmm. treated the underlying 
cause. You know, so I think it's t- that realizing that probiotics have specific actions um, and, and how they can interact with us and how they might interact with certain other microbes in the gut, for example, that go beyond um, this concept of colonization. And then that's the only thing that matters because it, it really doesn't matter. And, you know, we've got all this research showing that these probiotics work despite the fact they don't permanently colonized despite the fact they only stay around for short periods of time a transitory effect right you mentioned uh, that certain probiotics have you know specific actions in the body and so do you want to maybe explore a little bit on some of the i guess funky or unusual actions that people may not be aware of such as potentially anxiolytic effects or you know antidepressant properties and things like that do you want to look yeah. at yeah some other interesting aspects there well it's, it's been this has been amazing to watch for the last really 15 years where where we started using probiotics oh, i'd say it even goes back to well, 1999 was the first study that i think they really looked at using probiotics to prevent eczema and it was a maybe the study was done before that was published in 1999 in the land it was like a pretty huge thing going oh my god if we give probiotics we can actually prevent eczema developing in these kids for an allergy, this allergy sort of pathway. <clears throat> and that, I think, really opened the gates of going, oh, my gosh, we can use probiotics for more than just gut or vaginal issues, which is really where they had been researched up until that point. Mm-hmm. So it's been great to see, the, see all the, 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 again, the booming area of probiotic research where there's clinical trials for cervical dysplasia wow. from ingesting probiotics for um, endometriosis, Mm. From again, orally ingesting probiotics, as well as for things like bacterial vaginosis or um, vaginal candidiasis, for example, or prevention of UTIs. You know, so that's the, wow. the sort of you know, female repro area, you could argue. And then there are clinical trials for using pro- probiotics have been shown to decrease anxiety, to improve mood scores, to benefit cognitive scores in people with, with Alzheimer's disease. Mm. Um, as well as for more classical stuff around irritable bowel syndrome or inflammatory bowel disease and your lower cholesterol levels, there's some probiotics used in Europe to decrease high blood pressure to give you, again, a, a decent spread of, of actions that were, or, or, or if indications that, that human clinical trials have shown probiotics can be useful for. So it's not even just in vitro research, not just animal studies. These are all human clinical trials showing that specific probiotics can be helpful for those conditions. So it's, it, for me, they're a, a core... Um, group of tools that I use in my practice. Yeah, just like I've got herbs, yeah. I've got probiotics, I've got nutritional supplements. You know, I separate them out because you can't just go I'll give a probiotic, and that to me is always something that's very frustrating when you read something. So I'll just take a probiotic. It's like, yeah, that's useless advice. It's like take take a herb, take a drug. Which exactly. <laughs> which herb? Which drug? You know, yeah. it's like you've got to be specific here. What action are you after? What are you trying to achieve? Yep. This is what we need to be, be focusing on when we make our choice around probiotics. Exactly. Yep. So I guess maybe we can transition back into exploring more of the impact of diet uh, and how, how specifically certain food groups or I guess lack of certain food groups can impact uh, the microbiome. So maybe we sort of start out with, I guess, at the moment, a lot, a lot of the my US audience, uh, you know, it's quite big in the US is the carnivore diet. So perhaps okay. we can sort of start with analyzing what we know so far about, you know, what happens to the gut when we remove fiber completely, such as on the carnivore diet. Yeah. And I'm, I suppose I'm looking forward to probably more systematic research around that, that question. I mean, I think we can look at, okay, what happens when we go ketogenic? What happens when we go high fiber, sorry, high protein, low carb, and essentially cut out most fiber? Because there is research around those those oh. aspects of things. And I think there's the theoretical ideas of what's going to happen too when we take that another step further. Because essentially what microbes are living in our gut really depends on what we feed them. I think that's sort of like you know, makes sense and we kind of resonate with that. But when you think about that, that's really important because you might have 160 species down there. Some will eat bile, some will eat protein, but a whole bunch, particularly ones we then we see as beneficial species, um, are fiber consumers. And if we essentially don't feed them, their populations go down and there are consequences to that. And that's what we do see in research and I certainly see in patients that have been following sort of more extreme ends of, of you know, animal-based ketogenic versus, you know, having more plant fibers in there too, is you will get a decrease in butyrate-producing bacteria. Right. 
And, and the research showed even within two weeks, you can have a 50%, you know, for a pretty massive decrease, a decrease in, in bifidobacteria and a decrease in fecalibacterium, which is a, a key bifidobacterium bacteria that has other anti-inflammatory effects in the gut as well. So for me, that's, that's a pretty dramatic impact. Yeah, and that does impact on things like gut integrity over the longer term because your, your colonocytes, your colon cells have essentially evolved its relationship with gut, our gut microbes and that about 70% of their energy needs are met from the gut, gut bacterial metabolites like butyrate yeah. and other short-chain fat acids, but primarily butyrate, 70%. So what happens when we don't feed those colonocytes butyrate anymore, they don't function the way that they should. You know, and you start getting le- leaky colon and you start getting inflammation that, that's going on. They, then they can't really heal up properly because we're so reliant on that. And it's pretty amazing to think about the fact that we've evolved, you know, those cells have evolved this, this relationship with the microbiome and particularly with the butyrate producing microbes that are there. And those ones are very much dependent on dietary fibers, resistant starches, oligosaccharides to, uh, and polyphenols, I would say, to, to essentially be able to produce butyrate and be able to function, uh, eat <laughs> and live. And if we take all those things out, essentially we don't feed them anymore. Yeah. What we do feed is ones that eat protein and we're often feeding ones that eat bile. Mm. And, and those ones... Is, are, are more problematic in that in general we're feeding more proteobacteria, we're feeding more um, allostipes, more bacteroides, ones that actually tend to thrive on more protein and, and, and bile. Because when we eat more fat, we produce more bile, yeah. more fat, more bile, more fat, more bile. So they're not eating the fat directly, but they are responsive to fat intake. This is something I see clearly when you, you see this rise in allostipes and this rise in bilophila, which are, are key bile-loving organisms, and they eat their primary bile acids, and they produce these things called secondary bile acids, which are then pro-inflammatory in the colon, as well and linked to increased risk of colon cancer, for example. And through that process of protein putrefaction, because that's essentially what's happening, is you're feeding more, if you're cutting out the fiber and having essentially much more protein, Mm. more of the protein reaches the colon to be putrefied as the technical term for it. And there's a reason why they, they use that term instead of fermentation, because it's not a clean burn <laughs> like you know like fiber is a clean burn that you get gas like hydrogen hydrogen gas and short chain fatty acids yeah and then some some hydrogen gas will be consumed by something else like methane producing microbes right. for example but the putrefaction of protein gets a little bit of gas not very much a little bit of short chain fatty acids less and certainly not much in the way of butyrate but you do get ammonia you get amines you get indols you get phenols you get hydrogen sulfide Yes, and many of these things are, are toxic in higher amounts. Mm. Yeah, and you can cope with it for a period of time. Um, but things like hydrogen sulfide gas, for example, we know has got the capacity of causing visceral hypersensitivity. Um, it prevents colonocytes from being able to utilize butyrate as a food source. So even though the small amount of butyrate is being produced, it can't be even utilized properly because of the increase in hydrogen sulfide gas production and causes that sort of chronic leakiness that I alluded to earlier. You know, but that doesn't happen over two days or two weeks. You know, that builds up over over months and months. Yeah, and this mm-hmm. is where you see this increasing gut sensitivity. Like I had, a, I had a patient who came to see me that essentially was she was just eating two chickens a day. That's it, nothing else. Mm-hmm. Um, she had been eating a little bit more, but but as her gut got more and more inflamed, she essentially was cutting out anything that produced gas. Yeah, and and in the end. You know, she's getting a bit of gas from potatoes, so practitioner said, okay, we'll cut out potato. She did that, and then trying to get her to have anything that was remotely fibrous, even like a tiniest bit, would cause her excruciating pain. Wow. Because essentially, and we, looked, we did a micro, microbiota analysis, and her like allostipes were off the charts, or very high um, you know, proteobacteria, and extremely low butyrate-producing bacteria which is you'd expect because you're not feeding it. Like it's not a, not a surprise, but it was interesting to see the, the total amount. I think her butyrate producing bacteria made up like 2% of her ecosystem. And usually we're looking at 40% is what we're looking for ideally. So like, you know, right. really, really low. Um, and, and her degree of visceral hypersensitivity was intense. You know, she was in excruciating pain every single day when she could feel the bit of her, you know, bowel movement essentially scraping its way, going through her gut. It's causing excruciating pain. And this is just one of our, some of the, the more cl- classic endpoints that you see where we're starving off butyrate-producing microbes, we're starving off bifidobacteria, the ones that are, are important for promoting integrity and decreasing inflammation in the gut. We're feeding microbes that are causing inflammation in the gut um, and causing that, that increased hydrogen sulfide gas production increase of secondary bile acid production 
which again increases inflammation and causes having such a severe degree of inflammation in the mm. colon as a result of that. Interesting. So obviously you mentioned a little bit on um, on butyrate, and <clears throat> I know butyrate's probably been. Is it? Would you say it's one of the most uh, well studied short chain fatty acids? I know there's acetate and propionate. So there's the they're the main yeah. they're the main three, and then is butyrate the one that's had they are the research. I'd say more recently, yeah. Because I, again, I can look back to look back at my honors thesis, and and where I had did a review on short chain fatty acids, and I reckon acetate actually had a fair bit around it back in the late 90s, or you know, which is where the literature I was looking at mm-hmm. for my first honors thesis. Um, but I think the research on butyrate has really boomed since that point. So there's certainly stuff on acetate, certainly stuff on 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 propionate too, a little but a lot less than, than butyrate. And I think the there's been a lot more focus on butyrate because of the, not just because it's the main food source for colonocytes, because we've known that for a long time, but because it has other systemic benefits yeah. that have only recently arguably been teased out yep. beyond just its impact on the gut. And, and that's the other aspect that, that you'd argue be the, the negative consequences too, that if we're not getting that... Um, if there's very little butyrate being produced, clonocytes are going to utilize everything that's there and even not have enough for them. And you're certainly not going to get any sort of systemic absorption of that butyrate to get the other actions that butyrate can produce, which are the neuroprotective yeah. uh, anti-inflammatory actions. They improve insulin sensitivity, so they help with blood sugar control, for example. They can help heal a damaged blood-brain barrier, mm-hmm. help essentially increase you know, serotonin production in the gut by decreasing inflammation in the brain. It's like all oh, this amazing stuff that butyrate does. It is very much a, neuro, a potent neuroprotective agent, but we have to produce enough in the gut yep. to have a chance of getting enough in the circulation to get those, those additional therapeutic effects. Yeah. I know there's a, there's a few products on the market that actually, that actually sell like exogenous butyrate in a supplement form. So yeah. curious to know your, your thoughts on exogenous short-chain fatty acid supplementation. Yeah, my, my first goal is always to enhance endogenous production. Yeah. You know, feed up the indigenous producers because most people are there. Yeah. <laughs> Even that, that patient that had 2%, there were still some there, you know, and there was still enough if we could eventually get to the point when she has actually expanded her diet quite considerably since then for, from a fiber, plant, food, polyphenol perspective. Um, and, and her butyrate producers would have gone up as a consequence of that. Um, but, but there are some of those people who, who have that degree of severe gut sensitivity that we might use exogenous butyrate as a substitute because at the moment, uh, the tiniest pinch of any sort of plant food worsens their already severe gut pain. So we have to deal with that. Um, We're stuck in this conundrum because if it stays like that, the inflation is going to get worse and worse. Mm. Yeah. So we've got to try to expand their dietary approach. There's more fibers, polyphenols, resistant starches, et cetera, slowly. (laughs) Um, At the same time, um, decreasing that that inflammation that's that's currently present so they can really tolerate those things better. Yeah, and I think exogenously supplied butyrate, so supplemental butyrate can play a key role there. And that's probably where I use it most is in that yeah. situation. And ideally something that's slow release that, that releases in the colon rather than supplements that might release in the, in the stomach and upper gut and you absorb that butyrate and you don't get the, the local effects in the colon, which is what I'm really after in that instance. Because there is good research showing butyrate can um, help decrease that visceral hypersensitivity and obviously promote healing of a damaged and inflamed colon. Mm. So with that, um, that visceral hypersensitivity you just mentioned, is that something that's <clears throat> just common across uh, IBS, IBSC, different types of IBS? Do you want to explain what that actually is for my listeners? They may not be aware of... Yeah, essentially, yeah, good, good point. So visceral hypersensitivity is where the nerves in the gut are hypersensitive. Um, and essentially how they, and I always tell my patients this, but how they research it in research circles, luckily not in our clinical practice, is putting these special balloons up their butts and, and pumping up these balloons. And people with visceral hypersensitivity complain of discomfort and bloating when the balloon is this full, whereas normally it would be this full before I would get the same degree of discomfort yeah. as what they're experiencing. Essentially, the nerves are just hyper-responsive and even a small amount of stimuli, and that can be feces moving through, that can be any bubble, gas bubbles being created, the pressure on those nerves triggers a much more exaggerated pain response. Mm. And that's what they're experiencing. It it is very common across IBS patients and it's considered one of the core underlying drivers of of irritable bowel syndrome as well. And it's certainly not uncommon in um, also colitis and certainly with a number of patients that I'm working with that have got a a fair degree of um, inflammation that, 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 that area, it's, it's pretty common. 
You know, I'm thinking of one patient that had to do an enema before bed every single night to clear out any feces so they could sleep because just the presence of feces just sitting there overnight was enough to cause enough pain to prevent sleep. You know, and that's again a more exaggerated response. Cool. So do you want to maybe explore a little bit on uh, the implications of sort of excessive antibiotic usage and sort of like what the research has shown? I know there's some people, you know, discussing the fact that certain antibiotics can wipe out certain bacteria for many months or even up to a couple of years of red. So do you want to explore sort of how like we've gone about that sort of research? Yeah, and this has been a, a fascinating area to watch too. I, I did a, a systematic review, I think it was about 2004, where we grabbed every single study that looked at antibiotics and their effect on the gut microbiota, which was 100 and some studies, wow. extracted all the data into little tables to get an idea of what was doing what. And, and every single study done to that point had used culturing. And as right. I said at the very beginning, not that accurate to tell us what's going on. And generally they would show, yeah, there's a massive change for maybe a week, two weeks, at the worst four weeks, then it's going to look pretty much similar to what it looked before. You know, so I remember reading that, that data at that point, going, my God, maybe, it's, maybe they're not that bad. Maybe they're only impacting things for like you know, two to four weeks, and then things seem to get, look more normal again. Um, and that was really a limitation of the tools that we had. That was the key thing there, because there was one research study um, that showed that even you know, 16 months after course of antibiotics, the metabolic activity, the functionality was different. And that, that was the first study that, that was in the early 2000s to suggest that, that maybe it looked normal, but the functionality was different. But luckily, as we, we moved over to using um, modern microbiology techniques, we could actually see that the impact of antibiotics was far, far greater for the most part than what we assumed before. Mm. Um, it's an interesting study published in GUT Last year, single course, IV antibiotics, nine species went extinct. Extinct? Extinct. What do you mean by extinct? Extinct. Gone. (laughs) Never to be seen again in this person's gut. Yeah. So that was IV antibiotics in one single course, one single dose even. It wasn't like, you know, like a lot. It was just like this, sometimes some antibiotics have got absolutely massive changes to the ecosystem. And and in this case, they had... um, a species that went from like 0.00 something percent, um, Bork falkii, uh, went up to 92% the day the next day after the antibiotics, you know, because it could, sur- it could survive that antibiotic and the competition didn't. And it was like, ah, oh, I got food, I got space, grew into that. And they didn't even, this bug didn't even know existed before. They named it after the researchers, Bork and Falk. But <laughs> joined it together, Bork falkii, very funky name. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so that, that in itself was interesting, just that change. And then, then it did sort of settle back down and the Bork falkii went back down to much lower level. However, it was the nine species being lost. And there was a 10 species that was missing for, I think it was nine months. And then eventually it came came back on the radar but even two years afterwards those nine species were gone so i think that really needs to be on our our, be flagged for patients and practitioners it's just the the potential impact there is not as mild as we once thought Mm -hmm. and what are the repercussions of the loss of nine species we don't know i think that's the key thing is that some of these species we, we have not named yet we don't know what role that they play in the gut but they have evolved with humans for thousands upon thousands of years so arguably they're play important roles, or they might well do. Um, and there is a degree of what we call functional redundancy in the ecosystem in that um, a number of species can do the same task, um, but there's some cases there's not. And I think a clear point, clear example of this is oxalobacter formagenes. So oxalobacter eats oxalates. Oh, okay. We know that, um, that, that we get in spinach and almonds, you know, those, those sort of foodstuffs. Mm. Now, there's research showing that people who took a, a triple antibiotic cocktail for Helicobacter pylori, you know, that little microbe that causes, potentially causes stomach ulcers in some people, given that antibiotic cocktail, 66% of them permanently lose extinction level events of oxalobacter mm-hmm. after that. That's crazy. Yeah. And from that point, it means that that microbe that was eating your oxalates mm-hmm. and preventing you from absorbing them, it can't do that. Right. And that oxalate is now being absorbed. And, and now you have a high risk of kidney stones. And I mean, there's all this discussion around oxalate issues now that wasn't around 15, 10, 15, 20 years ago. It wasn't. Yeah, we had oxalates and kidney stones totally, but not all these other issues there. And I really think this has got a lot to do with that loss of that species where we don't have that functional redundancy, that that is the only species in our gut, that, in some of these people, that can eat 
oxalate and it's gone, it means that you absorb that oxalate and you weren't before. You know, and it means if, if that was for, um, let's say, a 20-year-old woman who gets treated for H, H. pylori, then she, before she has kids, she can't pass on that species to the next generation. So this is, we're talking about intergenerational effects. And I think this, to me, is the other thing that's, that's, that's a huge issue of concern for me, is that the, what we're doing to our ecosystem now impacts generations moving forward because we can only pass on what we have. And that, that person that lost their nine species from that course of antibiotics will no longer be able to pass it on to their family line. And what we see for Westerners is this dramatic decrease in diversity with every generation because we're getting you know, C-section births, we're getting formula feeding, we're getting lots of antibiotic use, uh, a crappy Western diet. <laughs> you know, so then they, they have this, they can pass that on to the next generation and they go through the same process and it gets thinner and thinner and thinner because we're wiping out the species that can't tolerate the antibiotics that, that need polyphenols and dietary fibers to live, you know, for example, and we're just getting stuck with a much smaller, less diverse ecosystem. And, and there are people certainly arguing that. A key reason why we're seeing this Boom and boom in allergies and this boom in autoimmune disease diseases and boom in neurodegenerative conditions is because of this this change in our ecosystem that we see in Westerners. That there's and if we keep moving the same way, there's no hope of really easily shifting that because you know we're still giving people are still getting antibiotics for viral infections now. You know, there's a study published in the Medical Journal of Australia, 2018, I think showing that 90% of people presenting with viral bronchitis to their GP got prescribed antibiotics. 2018. This isn't like Jeez. going too far back in time, you know. So we're we're still haven't addressed that. There's some of those key drivers of loss of species um, presence, and and you know, antibiotics save lives and save limbs, and we should use them for those conditions. <laughs> we shouldn't be using for viral infections, and we shouldn't be just playing with them. Going, oh, let's just try antibiotics to see if it works. If we have got no evidence that that they actually are are safe and effective in that that condition. Yeah. Super fascinating. I was I was never aware of that specific um, oxalobacter. You said oxalo oxalobacter formation. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. That's um. Do you have much of that on your? Is that like an area that you're going to be researching more and more, or which bit? Uh, <laughs> A few different tangents there. Yeah. So. The, um, the oxal. I'm, I'm really captivated by that. I, I was never aware that we even had bacteria that could help to offload the the negative effects of oxalates. I always thought there were certain nutrients such as B6, you know, citric acid, things that help with elimination, but I wasn't sure, I wasn't aware of yeah. bacteria that could help to combat the oxalates. So that's really fascinating. Yeah, and, and certainly most of my patients that I see, if not all, that have oxalate issues have lost that species. Really? Yeah. Mm. Not all, but most, most have. I mean, there's other dietary factors that, that you've mentioned and other things that can increase absorption of oxalates from the colon, um, irrespective. Mm. But that is a, certainly a key, mm. uh, a key factor in many patients. It's fascinating. So obviously we spoke a little bit about uh, the lack of fiber, but I want to explore a little bit more on the lack of polyphenols in, I guess, maybe mm. like the carnivore diet because that's something that I want to <clears throat> see more people discussing and, and you know, talking about how these polyphenols, these are modbiotics or whatever you want to call them, sort of things that will help re reestablish certain bacteria in the gut. But do you want to explore, I guess, some of the implications or the effects of certain polyphenols on the microbiome? Yeah, and this is an area that, that is currently being teased out in much yeah. greater detail than, than, than we knew ever knew before. But, you know, for those people that aren't aware, polyphenols are, in general, we see them as the brightly colored compounds that we find in you know, blueberries and raspberries and blackberries and cherries, um, eggplant skin, black rice, red rice, you know, black, pin, um, black beans, for example, and zuki beans, you know, to give you a bit of an idea of what foods they're in. And obviously, uh, purple potatoes, purple carrots, red uh, cabbage, red lettuce, those are obviously all plants. Yeah. <laughs> if you haven't seen that pattern that comes through there. Um, and, and, but 90 to 95% of dietary polyphenols are too big to be absorbed. Yeah. So they essentially reach the colon. Mm. And this is where they interact with our, micro, our microbiota. And generally, the sort of more you know, gut-healing anti-inflammatory species are the ones that actually interact with those polyphenols. But we get this win-win situation from it. And that they convert that polyphenol from something that's too large to be absorbed to something that is smaller and can be absorbed and therefore has a therapeutic effect once absorbed. But because they're eating it, they actually grow 
too. So we're actually feeding the beneficial species and at the same time, they're nurturing us in return by creating this, these smaller polyphenol molecules, which we can then absorb. And this is even important for medicinal herbs too, as you know, for, for herbalist herbs like ginseng, is a, is a, Panax ginseng is a, is a good case here to look at too, because the compounds in Panax ginseng um, are essentially are too large to be absorbed. And they need to be converted by a number of different species, including some of the butyrate producers, including some things like bifidobacteria, to make the compound that we then absorb that has a therapeutic effect. Yeah, but, we're, but, but we know that these polyphenols tend to have, broadly speaking, antioxidant and a range of anti-cancer, anti-inflammatory effects in the system. And so um, I think the, the anti-inflammatory aspect is a pretty huge one because how many diseases that we see in Western nations that aren't driven by inflammation? Yeah, and, and if we sort of take out these anti-inflammatory factors in our food, there's a consequence, let alone the, the, the direct consequence on the microbiota as well, whose species are dependent on the consumption of those polyphenols mm. as well. Super yeah, interesting. So I think that's another huge thing. There's the, there's the fibers, resistant starches, oligosaccharides, and there's the polyphenols that were essentially on, on that sort of very restricted diet. You are preventing any of those microbes that eat those things from being fed and essentially eating, feeding the ones that eat protein and bile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, super fascinating. So I want to, um, yeah, I want to discuss a little bit about potentially um, a little bit on bile because I, I know, like, I mean, I've spoken about it under like trying to educate people on the importance of eating the bitter foods to stimulate bile pre pre digestion things like that. And you mentioned that ninety five was it ninety five percent actually get reabsorbed back into the small intestine. Uh, I didn't, but. <laughs> We know. Uh, I was talking more around the polyphenols and their lack of absorption, uh, meaning yeah. that they all reach the colon. So I didn't talk too much around um, enterobiotic recycling of, of bile acids. Yeah, you just wanna, did. Wanna, <laughs> it's a good lead-in. Sounds good. You want to discuss maybe like you mentioned. So the, the protein that can be putrefied in the in the lower yeah. intestine, but what happens with the bile? Yeah, and it does depend on on the composition of that bile as well because we change the composition of our bile to suit the types of fat that we're consuming yeah yeah so there there is there is ample evidence showing that um to deal with dairy fat for example we produce a much higher sulfur based um bile and we actually feed different microbes from an, this amount of dairy fat than we do with this amount of olive oil or um, you know avocado oil or not you know if not seed oil for example um yeah it's something very Listen, and when it comes to things like allostipes and bilophila, which are the two species we see as being key consumers of, of bile acids, um, it, they do seem to, their populations seem to be very dependent upon not only total fat, which has a, a part of contribu- contribution, but types of fat. So dairy fat, lard, um, sorry, animal fats more broadly, ghee, butter, um, which is obviously dairy fat, but just want to clarify that, and coconut oil actually seem to be things that can drive the increase in bilophila and elastipes. And I don't see that with olive oil. I don't see that with people eating lots of avocados or nuts and seeds. Yeah, um, you know, they're eating lots of olives and olive oil. I don't see that. It's really the f- think foods in those categories that produce that more higher sulfur-based um, bile, which then can be used by, by things like bilophila specifically. Wow. Fascinating. So maybe um, we can delve a little bit into um, had a few notes here. I guess oh, there's one. So in terms of understanding the, the the ratio between the firmicutes and the bacteriodoides, so that's something that's you know talked about quite a lot. So do you want to you know sort of explain the what 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 are these different types of bacteria? Yeah. So that we've got different ways of classifying. Microbes and and most of the, of the species in the gut will belong to the either Firmicutes or Bacteroidetes. Yeah. Not all. Mm. There are some like E. coli, you know, Klebsiella, Oxalobacter that belong in the Proteobacteria grouping. There is um, Acromansia that belongs in the Veruca microbia phyla, and then there are Bifidobacteria that belong belong into the Actinobacteria phyla. But most people's ecosystems are dominated by Firmicutes and Bacteroidetes. Wow. 
to to great extent. You, you will get people that are exceptions to this, but in, but in general, that's the way it is. Now, do those microbes within those groupings have a lot in common? Not that much. <laughs> it's 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 a very it's sort of like you know us with things with spinal cords or something, you know, it's like, yeah, we've got some things in common, but there's a lot of differences between them too. Uh, and it's the same way with these microbes that you can say, okay, well, all bacteroidal teas are gram negative microbes and all gram negative bacteria produce lipopolysaccharide as part of their structure or endotoxin. Yeah. So, okay. They've got that in common. And, and I think you could see that as a potential driver of inflammatory conditions in patients. Or I certainly do. Um, for Mikutis, again, it's a, it's a wide group of different species. Now, most, in fact, almost all of our butyrate-producing bacteria belong to the Firmicutes phylum. So there's a lot of good guys in there. And there are some in the bacteroidetes that I'd say are more in the, the pathobiont category. So pathobiont is where species, when they're in the right amount, are doing good things for us. They're great. They're very helpful for us. But when they get too high is when they become more pathogenic or disease-causing. And I'd say that there's probably more, arguably, in the in the um, Bacteroidetes phyla who've got that that capacity, like, like Bacteroides uh, as a genus, which is probably essentially what the the, the name came from for Bacteroidetes. Um, t- tends to be one of those species that, in the right amount, is great, is quite helpful for digestion and production of short-chain fatty acids. But in too high amounts, it produces ammonia, um, pro- putrefies protein, um, produces things like beta-glucuronidase, which then enhance enterobatic recycling of, of toxins um, and things your body's wanting to get rid of and hormonal products, for example. Um, yeah, so not that great. But I think where the, the focus really came from was, was a study done in 2005, 2006, where they, they showed that link between essentially that the, an obese microbiota, we could, we could pass on obesity from obese rats to, to thin rats, thin mice, by, by taking poo. Despite no change in calories, no change in exercise, these things would get fat. You know, and, and it was, again, one of those groundbreaking papers that really showed how important the microbiota was for your body's metabolism, that we had no idea how important it was up until that paper was published. Now, that paper suggested that there was an imbalance back to what it is ratio associated with obesity. Yeah, and that's what they found in these rats, and that's what they found in, in, in the human population they looked at in that that small cohort study that they, they looked at, they published at the time. And that really gained a hell of a lot of media attention for good reason, because it was a pretty groundbreaking paper. But uh, in my opinion, it's meant that people have got too attached to the Firmicutes bacteroidetes ratio, because there's been a number of studies, even within the realm of obesity and metabolic dysfunction, that have not found the same thing around that ratio, or, or found the opposite, that having higher Firmicutes is better rather than having higher Bacteroides, and others have found no association. So I think from a metabolism perspective, I don't put any weight and focus on that on that ratio, or even more more broadly, I'm looking at at what's the components of of could they have too much too much endotoxin? This was maybe that's the way I'm looking at Bacteroides because they're endotoxin producers, releasers. It's like okay, how how big of a component of the gut are they, and how much might not be driving that inflammation? this patient, you know, and, and how is their diet and lifestyle influencing where that's at? Um, and then again, I'm looking at Firmicutes mostly because of all the butyrate producers from those categories. So I wanted to make sure that there's a good amount of butyrate producing bacteria in someone's ecosystem, mm. but I'm not attached to that ratio. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think we should be based on current data. Of course. And, and obviously you said that there's other bacteria that that lie outside of either the bacteriodes or Firmicutes. And one of them you mentioned was Acomanzia. Yes. Yeah, so Acomanzia is one of those recently introduced species that we didn't know existed before that in healthy guts make up between, you know, one and 3% of what's there. Um, that seems to play a pivotal role for metabolism, you know, help, help ma- maintain good weight, maintaining good, um, blood sugar regulation and metabolic control, as well as just gut integrity in general. That it seems to be, you could see it's 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 the function it performs in the gut is to maintain good gut integrity. I think that's a good good takeaway, and the flow on of that is improved metabolic health. Yeah, that's the other takeaway. So so yes, yeah, so that's one of those genera that very few people are aware of. Um, Acromanzi, it paid me more so, I must say, because I remember I've done enough talks over the years that I say, how many people in the room have heard of Acromanzi or Fecalobacterium? And it used to be like nobody or one or two people. And now most people put up their, their hands. So like the awareness of that, that um, specific genus has increased dramatically mm-hmm. over the last you know, five to seven years, um, mostly based around that. And this, the Acromanzi is an interesting microbe because it can eat, actually eat a few different things. Yeah? It can eat mucus. 
wow. gut mucus. It can eat fruit oligosaccharides and, and other sort of indigestible oligosaccharides. It can eat polyphenols. Yeah. So that is one of the species that doesn't necessarily get negatively impacted by like a carnivore or, or ketogenic diet. Yeah. The reason being is because um, it's, such diets can, can essentially induce more inflammation in the gut, which means more mucus is being secreted which means Ackermansia continues having a food source. Yeah. And sometimes you'll see, have people whose Ackermansia are like 15, 20% of that ecosystem. And that's really, and they're, they're usually people that are pooing out tons of mucus in, with their bowel movements, for example, which is a clear sign that there's inflammation there. The body's trying to deal with that by secreting more mucus and the Ackermansia is like, oh yeah, I got lots of food. And then it grows to a great, great degree in that situation. So that's one population because of its ability to eat a few different food sources can actually go up or stay stable on a carnivore type, ketogenic type diet versus the other sort of beneficial categories like bifidobacter, fecalobacter, and butyrate producers that tend to go down. Fascinating. <clears throat> yeah. Um, just from on the Akkermansia front, um, I think I saw some, some pretty cool research on, if you're familiar with cordyceps mushroom? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was like, I was... It was an in vivo study. It wasn't obviously it's not in humans, but it does it does actually promote the growth of Akkermansia. So was, that's how I first heard about it. I was like, well, Cordyceps is able to ah, interesting help the growth of that. And I'm like, hmm, what's Akkermansia? What else increases Akkermansia? <laughs> yeah, well, luckily, I mean, th things like cranberry, um, uh, those red polyphenols tend to do so, and and certainly, I'd say most consistently, um, a prebiotic like inulin or the inulin-type fructans, like inulin and fruct oligosaccharides, oligofructose, tend to increase the growth pretty consistently across the board, in fact, in everybody. Lactulose is another prebiotic I use a lot in practice. will increase acromantia in most patients, but not all, because uh, I think some, some acromantia don't seem to have the, the right enzyme for lactulose. Most do, um, whereas inulin FOS, it does seem quite well, well geared to, and it does bring up the population pretty consistently. Yeah, lactulose is in the, um, the, the laxative? Yeah. Oh, okay. You may have not have known that, that lactulose used to be added to infant formula um, way back in the day as a prebiotic to try to make it more like breast milk um, sure. way before its time. Wow. <laughs> because they worked out, you know, back in the 1960s that, you know, like kids fed formula at their ecosystem was nothing like kids fed breast milk. And they knew that lactulose was a bifidogenic substance, enhances bifidobacteria. So they gave it in formula and their bifidobacteria went up pretty dramatically. Um, and it was way before its time, so it never probably hit much in the way of commercialization at that, at that time point for that. But because it's an indigestible sugar, it can work as a laxative. Yeah. Because um, we don't break it down or absorb it. But bacteria, only the good bacteria do. So it feeds bifidobacteria, it feeds fecalobacterium, it feeds acromandia consistently. Um, so they will consume it. Their populations go up. So we get the, if you get the dose right, it will work as a prebiotic and not laxative. If, it, if you give a laxative dose, you'll get a prebiotics and laxative <laughs> dose from it. Um, but the, laxative, the prebiotic dose is often like one or two teaspoons a day, whereas you're looking at six teaspoons in one hit for the laxative dose. So it's much more reduced than that. Wow. <clears throat> All right. Well, I wanted to sort of um, wrap it up with one sort of final question. Um, and this one's just, I want to throw this out there and just, I guess, see where your, how your brain ticks and I guess like where you see the entire, I guess, gut health research space veering, like what sort of direction do you see it sort of veering into? I think um, essentially poo capsules without the poo would <laughs> probably simply put where I, where I see things moving is, is that probiotics that are very novel, that are based on species that are found in guts in much greater amounts that play more pivotal roles. In, in gut health. And in fact, the first of that sort of newer generation probiotic has just reached the marketplace in the US and they're, they're marketing it for type 2 diabetes and metabolic dysfunction, but it's got acromansia, got two species of, of butyrate and a few species of butyrate producing bacteria combined. And that's the first of many. Um, you know, so I think that's, I'm a bit excited about of actually having, you know, a broader range of tools that we'll have access to with a wider range of microbes um, in those those forms potentially have, have a greater impact, particularly with those patients like that, you know, the person who just had chicken and that was it. It was like, okay, here's the chance of introducing some butyrate producing bacteria um, that, that maybe will have some different effect as they're passing through. Maybe they'll even permanently colonize. We don't know, you know, because what we do know is that with current generation probiotics based around lactobacilli and bifidobacteria, permanent colonization is extremely rare. 
there are the odd exception to that, but you know, ninety-five percent studies show they stay around for a week or two. You're doing pretty good. Um, but I'm hopeful that we'll eventually develop, you know, newer ones that can actually recolonize in a way that current generations don't, in a much more effective way. You know, and and I think you know, fecal microbial transplants are going to be something that's much bigger in the future as well for a wide range of different conditions. But I think there's going to be moves to make that easier and less pooey. And that's the poo capsules without the poo, just the microbes without the other fecal, fecal matter alongside that people will happily be swallowing, whereas at the moment there's too much um, wow. issue with, with swallowing poo capsules, more broadly speaking, um, or doing you know, you know, enemas, for example, as ways to um, introduce in new ecosystem in. But, but I do think that that, that will be a booming area too of going, okay, well, can FMTs help with depression, anxiety, uh, obesity, metabolic syndrome? And there's some preliminary research showing that they certainly can. Um, yes, I mean, I think Alzheimer's, multiple sclerosis, RA. I mean, I think that there's, there's all these things that, that there, there are is great potential to actually impact through the changes in the gut. And we're certainly at that beginning stages of using more, you know, more FMT as a way of changing that, which is a much more dramatic shift to the ecosystem. Um, that's easy rather than changing one's diet <laughs> or changing one's lifestyle, which, you know, um, we would argue is like a core thing we should be focusing on. Um, but that requires a lot more effort versus than just taking a pill. Um, and for some people might be able to take that pill and get some benefit for six weeks or eight weeks until those microbes die off and they need another dose. But if it's quick and easy, then they might, that might actually take off as a new treatment approach too. Fascinating. Definitely an area that I'll, uh, I'll keep my eyes out in terms of these. Um, mm. I think one of my friends actually labeled them crapsules. Yeah. Yeah. It's well-named. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, Jason, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a, it's been packed full of, you know, valuable, valuable information for my listeners. They're going to, they're going to absolutely love this episode. So <clears throat> do you want to give my listeners a chance to, you know, find out more about your services and what you offer and where they can learn more about, I guess, you know, your resources and stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, I've got a, a website called probioticadvisor.com and we've got two arms to that. One is, is a, a courses portal and we have a range of courses on gut health and the, and the gut microbiota, a vaginal microbiota breast milk microbiota, but just like human microbiota and how we can change that. Um, gut parasites, fructose intolerance, a few different things there, topic areas. And then um, also a, a probiotic database, which is really designed more for practitioners going, okay, well, I want to know what probiotic is best to treat ulcerative colitis to help bring into remission in someone that's you know doing 10 body bowel movements a day versus which ones are better for keeping someone in remission. Um, what's best probiotic to help treat with uh, work with anxiety, for example. You can search anxiety or depression into those, the database term and it comes up with evidence-based probiotics that the research shows are useful to treat those conditions. So yeah, I think that's probably the best area to go to find more information about me. I'm also a clinician at, at Gould's Natural Medicine as well. And I absolutely love having a couple of patient days a week to to work with people and have a chance to, to shift ecosystems. And that's the thing that I enjoy most is actually seeing before and after work um, and objective data of, you know, from microbiome analysis to see what's actually shifted and then what the flow and effects that might actually be externally from that. Fantastic. Well, um, that pretty much wraps up another episode of the Boost Your Biology podcast. Keep a lookout, guys, for the show notes. I'll be listing Jason's website, probioticadvisor.com, down, down below. But uh, again, I just want to say a massive thanks for joining me in. Jason, it's been a, it's been a pleasure having you on. Hi, oh, you're welcome, Lucas. It was a good, good chat. I liked it. Yeah, sweet. Thanks. Thank you, everyone, for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.